Welcome to the Beat Your Heart Out podcast, presented by Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions. I'm your host, Maureen Buscarino, and I am super excited to introduce you to stories and music from some of the most incredible musicians from the world of rock, blues, country, rockabilly, punk, and garage that I have had the pleasure of seeing perform. I love their music so much, and I think you will too. Deke Dickerson is known by many in the rockabilly, country, garage punk, and guitar world as a phenomenally talented and fun performer. Boy, we cover a lot of ground in this interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Whatever genre Deke is playing, you can't help but hear the joy he takes in all that he does. He's also a collector, like a modern-day Alan Lomax searching for lost songs and forgotten talented artists that he loves keeping their stories and their music alive. He also adds to the uh, tradition with his own compositions. And speaking of collecting, Deke is also known for his garage sale finds in a wonderful world of weirdness that he shares with his fans on his Facebook page. He's collected some interesting things, even a pink toilet that he found in a home that Merle Travis lived in in Oklahoma. Speaking of Merle Travis, Deke is also an accomplished writer and music historian and has a book coming out on country legend Merle Travis, and that'll be coming out this spring, 2021. Surprisingly, this is one of the first biographies written about Merle Travis. Deke commented that anybody who would enjoy a biography of Johnny Thunders would enjoy a biography of Merle Travis. We talk about how the book came to be, Merle's legacy, and how Merle came up with the concept for the modern electric solid body guitar, which was made by Paul Bigsby in 1948. Another one of Deke's books that has gained a cult following is Strat in the Attic, Thrilling Stories of Guitar Archaeology. It's hard to find a copy, but totally worth it. Um, it's also available on Kindle. We talk about recording and his label, uh, Echophonic Records, along with how he wound up in New York City meeting Miriam Lena and Billy Miller of Norton Records, and how Soda Pop fueled his trip. We chat a bit about how he got involved with Johnny Knoxville, working on the soundtrack for the movie Action Point, which was an homage to the legendary Action Park Water Park in New Jersey that I used to go to when I was a kid and obviously survived. I would love it if you could share Beat Your Heart Out with your friends and family and to write a review. Um, for the first 20 people who write a review on iTunes, I will give you a shout out on an episode and we'll send you some fun merch from Moon Over the Trees. So make sure to email me at info at moonoverthetrees.com and include your iTunes name. And without further ado, here is my chat with Deke Dickerson. So Deke, thank you so much for being with me here today on the podcast to talk about your music and your books and everything. There's just so much that like 
cool stuff that you do. So I'm just so thrilled that you're here with me today. Do you think of yourself as like a modern day Ellen Lomax in a way that you're trying to like preserve music and stories and like kind of bring these artists that you find and their music into the light kind of just so people can appreciate them? Uh, well, yes, definitely in a way, you know, uh, especially just uh, aside from my own career, you know, I've played with a lot of the older artists, you know, from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And it was kind of eye-opening to me to realize that, you know, when I first got into all this music, it was the 1980s. And, you know, there was a lot of these people still around and they were still pretty young and vital. And and now just in the last couple of years, it's like, man, you know, so many of them have passed away and are all passing away, you know, within the last year or two. And so it's been important to me to sort of bring some of these people out of obscurity and get them to play festivals again, get them to make new records again. Uh, and, you know, I've been super happy at the stuff that I was able to do with some of my heroes, uh, you know, basically right before they passed away. What made you want to get involved with that? Well, you know, some guys that form bands, they literally just think in terms of like, I want to be uh, in a, you know, successful band and have hit records. And that really is what I should have done. But, uh, you know, instead I was like, man, this is so cool. The Collins kids are still around and I can play with them. You know, like to me, that was way more important than, uh, you know, trying to polish my sound and, and uh, you know, try to have a hit record. Plus, you know, we sort of came in, in my opinion anyway, at the tail end of anything good actually being on the charts. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything that has been popular ever since I was 20 years old has just been, you know, varying levels of stuff just completely going to total crap right. uh, so I, I never really saw a place for myself uh in in that area you know so for me it was much more fun and important in my mind to to dig some of these old timers up uh write new original songs in those styles for myself uh, and just kind of go out and spread the gospel to a lot of people that maybe were unaware of that that music even existed. You love what you're doing so much that even if people haven't heard the songs or the music or these artists before, you just bring that energy into it that I think it's just awesome that you're doing that. So. Well, thank you. And, you know, fun is one of those things that seems to have really has gotten lost along the way. And so, yeah, if there's anything that I want to try to bring back, it's like, let's have some fun. Yeah. I, I mean, no, like the go-nuts. Um, that's, um, <laughs> you know, that's... You have to bring the go-nuts into it right oh, away. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> nuts, go-nuts. The go-nuts are your favorite thing. Yeah, 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 nuts. Go-nuts. You get them anywhere you can. One for the money. Two for the show. Three to get ready. Go nuts, go. Nuts, go nuts. The go-nuts are your favorite band. Yeah, 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 nuts. Go nuts. Get them anywhere you can. The captain, your chocolate is in my peanut butter. My daughter brings your peanut butter in my chocolate. Nuts, go nuts. The go-nuts are your favorite band. Yeah, 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 nuts. Go nuts. Get them anywhere you can. Grease, oil, shortening, and cholesterol. Butter, lard, eggs, it's a festival. Nuts, go nuts. The 
Bobby ended up just thinking fun and snack cannons and yeah. you're not afraid to be kind of silly on stage, but you also have, you know, that virtuosity on your guitar, which is, you know, a really cool balance to have, like with, you know, what you're doing too. So how do you find like these musicians though? Like how do they, do they find you or like the, like the rec, if they're like recluses or if they're, they kind of fell off the map, like how do you find them? You're, you're talking about the older musicians. The older, yeah. The older musicians. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, for these type of music that we're talking about, uh, you know, rockabilly and blues and country and, and 60s garage and things like that, those were always pretty small scenes. I mean, even when that music was popular, it's like, you know, you could go to Memphis and find two guys and ask them, hey, where, where's Billy Lee Riley? Hey, where's Sam the Sham? You know, and they they would they would know like it, they would either have their phone number or they could put you in touch with somebody who did. And so for me, you know, I always had a very inquisitive mind. And so whenever I was around somebody, uh, you know, like Roland James in Memphis, you know, who was a great guitar player that played with Billy Lee Riley and then wound up producing all these records, you know, I would ask him like a hundred questions, like you know, hey you know, whatever happened to this guy and, and have you seen so-and-so and do you know where he's living? And, and, you know, they would tell you. And, and so a lot of these guys would get tracked down that way. And of course, nowadays we have the internet and all these different tools where you can find somebody who uh, has tried to not be found. You can find them on the internet. So it's not so difficult anymore, but yeah, back in the days, it was always like you find that one important guy in a local scene and he could either put you in touch or, tell you how to get in touch with them you know yeah but I mean, what's it about you that they're open to you know working with you i mean i guess do you approach Money. them as like the fam oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean you know basically <laughs> it's it it really is a truly american thing where uh you know guys that would not let you in your door uh in their door if you come to them and say Hey, you know, I can get you a gig for $2,000 playing at a festival in, in Europe. And if it goes well, then you can play like 20 of those festivals. And then you can keep doing them like every couple of years. And then they're like, well, come on in. <laughs> so, and, and some of them have heard of you, I'm guessing. I mean, like, I mean, not in the beginning because of your career, but I mean, I'm sure some of them may have you know, cross paths with your music or, you know, to give you some credibility so you're not just some random guy knocking on their door, ask them the... I guess so. I mean, you know, I've, I'm always astounded when any of these guys have ever heard of me because they're my heroes. And, you know, it's like, wait a minute, I I, I don't matter at all. You're, you're like this guy up on a pedestal for me, you know. And I love that you, like, go around and collect artifacts and yeah you know like you you'll find like i think you were up in north jersey like 
few years ago and you you found like an old was an old record label or something and then there was like a giant turntable from a showroom that you needed to bring in like someone with a truck to like haul out of there and oh yeah yeah <laughs> well yeah that was that was just a whole nother stupid deal it was a recording studio from new york city that had gone out of business in the 80s and put all their stuff in a storage unit over, just right across the river, you know, like the first storage unit you could get to on the other side. And they had let that storage unit uh, expire. I'm guessing the guy that kept paying for it must have died. And so it was one of those storage wars kind of deals where a friend of mine was like, dude, there's a storage unit and it's all full of, uh, you know, 50s recording equipment. And so, you know, I, I wound up buying the contents of it. And yes, when I got there and opened the door, there was literally like this completely unrelated 10,000 pound giant metal <laughs> carousel for industrial shows that was blocking everything. Like you could sort of climb over it. It was, you know, about six feet tall to get to the stuff. But uh, we wound up putting a free ad on Craigslist and this giant, I mean, like the biggest human being I've ever <laughs> seen, this, gi this giant Portuguese guy with a, you know, a, a big truck came and got it. And he was lifting these like 500 pound pieces of iron and just like Jeez. throwing them on the truck. And we're just like, Holy crap, look at this guy. But yeah, once we, once we uh, got that out of the way, then I had all this stuff and brought it all back to California. That was a really foolish thing of mine <laughs> to do, but it was a fun trip. I, I, you just find all these like cool treasures and, and all too. So, I mean, th when it goes to the, from the equipment, um, like, is that where, you, you know, like you want that sound, right? So you want all the analog equipment and. Well, like that was that, a steep so. learning curve. And, you know, I, I know your, your husband deals with old vintage organs and stuff like that. You know, uh, when you first start playing, you're just like, dude, all I need is a guitar and an amp and then I can rock. <laughs> and then, you know, if you have ears and you have taste, then you start realizing like, oh, wow, well that sounds like crap, but that sounds really good. And then you pay attention. And, you know, if, if you're really into this sort of thing, after a few years, you get your own taste and you decide what you like. And I was lucky, you know, when I first started getting into it, because this was pre-internet, pre-eBay, all of that. And you can still go out there and scrounge up really good deals. Uh, it's been a lot tougher for that sort of thing uh, since eBay and since the internet and every, and everybody knows every price of everything within, you know, $2. Uh, but it's, it's amazing to me, especially with the weird old uh, oddball stuff that it just kind of finds me now, you know, like if somebody has a guitar that belonged to their grandfather and it's a weird guitar and it's not something that everybody wants he'll have like five people will tell him, well, you really ought to show this Deke Dickerson fella. And, you know, that's, that's how a lot of these things have, have wound up in, in my collection is just people who literally were like, well, this is a weird thing that no one else wants, but you might want it. So, uh, you know, and then I wound up buying it from him. But you post on uh, like Facebook, some of your finds are pretty, pretty amazing. <laughs> so yeah, the guitar I have behind me is uh, I'm like, a, like, this is my, my dad's old K guitar. From oh, nice. the, I guess he had it in college in the 40s, so I think my grandfather got it for him from a pawn shop. But that's my only, like, old guitar I have. <laughs> nice. Well, I love old vintage Ks. It doesn't play anymore, but maybe I could turn it into a slide guitar or something. I don't know. There you go. But it's 
you know, my dad played it in college. I have his old Ludwig um, drum kit that was, I think, my grandfather got it for him in a pawn shop in like the twenties or thirties, and uh, it has one of those lights in the in the bass drum and that oh, kind of awesome. thing. So he used to play like old big band music kind of stuff. So, um, well, see, you're 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 touching on one of the things that that really. Uh, is a motivating factor for me. And that is, you know, musical instruments are different than chairs or lamps in that, you know, they have this emotional human connection, you know, and, and these things get passed down from generation to generation. And, you know, they're important things in, in people's lives Mm -hmm. and they hold emotional value. And what's really heartbreaking to me and, and, one of the reasons why I started collecting all these instruments is that a lot of them, eventually they get to some family member who just doesn't care. Mm. Like they don't like music. They don't play an instrument. They hated their grandfather who owned the guitar whatever. And then you have to save it from getting tossed in a dumpster or, you know, getting chopped in half uh, because he gave it to his heavy metal grandson who wanted to, you know, put a whole bunch of, humbucking pickups or whatever in it and so for me a lot of this stuff uh the motivation for me has just been preservation mm. i should mention that I, I have a new book coming out yeah i do yeah i, was, I definitely want to ask you about your yeah your merle travis book that's coming out that's right yeah so uh it's a good segue right there I absolutely figured. yeah and that this one will be in print and available you can go out and buy it <laughs> uh, i think you can go to Barnes and Noble or anywhere and buy it because it's actually with a, a, a real publishing company called BMG uh, Books, which is a, a part of this BMG entertainment conglomerate, which I think is the biggest sort of record label conglomerate there is. Uh, a friend of mine started a publishing wing there and uh, I pitched the book to him and he's a country music fan. And, and so that's kind of how it got started. Awesome. Yeah. So how did how did you like choose Merle to write your book about well you know we're we're actually at a pretty late stage in the game for biographies of so many people i mean you know important figures a lot of them have had three or four biographies written you know what i mean and pretty much every single major country rock and roll blues uh you know artist has had a biography written about them that's why i couldn't figure out that merle travis didn't have one uh especially since Merle was probably the best writer out of all the country music stars. He was a really gifted writer and he wrote a lot of magazine articles and, uh, you know, drew cartoons and, and, you know, he was just a very sort of literate guy. That's why I could, I could not figure out why there was no book. And I befriended his two daughters that happened to live near me in Southern California. And I was pitching this idea And finally, they took me to uh, this storage unit up near Santa Barbara where they had put all of his stuff after he passed away. And what we discovered was that there was actually about 100 pages of raw, unedited autobiography that he had started. And so I took that and I pitched it to BMG Books. And I said, you know, look, we have the beginning of an autobiography. I can flesh it out, write all the rest of it, and put it all together and make it make Mm -hmm. sense. And so that's kind of how we, uh, we framed it. And, and I, as far as I'm, I am thinking right now, he's sort of like the last major country music figure that doesn't have a book about him. So now there will be. Wow. That's terrific. When is it going to be released? Uh, spring of next year. Okay. 
we were hoping for Christmas of this year, but you know, the COVID thing kind of screwed up everything. Right. Right. And then eventually, I guess when you can tour with it, you'll be touring with some of his music. I'm well, and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, by the time that comes out that maybe I can do some promotional trips and, you know, actually treat it like a real book promotion Mm. tour kind of a deal. Right. What are some highlights from the book that like any stories that kind of pop out? Well, you know, he was a very interesting guy who was, he was kind of like a cat, you know, he led nine lives and then somehow or another, he kept going after the ninth life ran out. But, uh, he was a famous guitar player. He was the best at this style that eventually became known as Travis picking. And then he wrote a bunch of beloved American folk songs like 16 tons and dark as a dungeon and smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Uh, he made all these great records. You know, he had hit records back in the 40s and 50s. Um, he was a very important inventor of guitar stuff. Um, I go into a lot of geeky detail in the book, but he was the guy that really came up with the concept for the modern solid body electric guitar, of which, you know, if you go out and see any rock and roll band playing all over the world, they're playing some guitar that you could actually trace back to this guitar that, he had made in 1948 that was built wow. by a guy named Paul Bigsby. Um, so, you know, he had, he did a lot of important things. Uh, and then from a personal angle, he was an interesting guy to write about because he was a, a hopeless alcoholic, a bad drug user, had a lot of, you know, ups and severe downs. You know, he, he probably had some sort of uh, bipolar disease that was never really properly treated. But, uh, you know, the guy was a genius, and uh, it's, it's always interesting to, to write about geniuses that struggle with these extreme highs and extreme lows. So it, it was an interesting life story to tackle rather than one of these guys where you're trying to make up detail to fill up a book's length that's like, you know, I had this much and I had to trim it down to this much. So there was a lot of meat there. Right, right. And I mean, with the Bigsby guitar, Bigsby only made like a handful of guitars, right? Or That's right. Yeah. He was just a guy uh, in Downey, California with a backyard workshop and he only made about 25 guitars on his own. But then uh, this guy named Leo Fender uh, saw Merle's guitar at a dance in 1948 and borrowed it for a week and made his own prototype of what eventually became known as the Fender Telecaster, which you know, sort of launched the solid body electric guitar thing all over the world. I mean, a bit of guitar history. I don't think people, a lot of people know about, which is interesting. Well, a lot of people sort of deny that it's true, but then, you know, if you sort of lay all the pieces in place, which uh, I tried to do in the book, it's like, there's, you can't really deny this is what happened. You know, the Los Angeles in the 1940s was a, a really influential place, not only in terms of music and culture, but also in terms of, industry and you know you you have all these guitar makers based out of there like uh fender and rickenbacker and magnetone and whatever and and all these people like merle travis and les paul was living in los angeles at that time and they all knew each other and they all hung out and they all sort of exchanged ideas and so so much happened in los angeles right after world war ii in in terms of uh, the electric guitar that uh you know, Merle Travis's influence was, he was the guy that was like coming up with these ideas that then these titans of industry like Leo Fender then sort of made millions of dollars building them. With 
a lot of the big bands, like going back to the big band stuff, like they needed that amplification, but those were the hollow body electric guitars that evolved into, but that's just a matter of amplification, right? Because you can only amplify yes. a hollow body so much before it, I mean. Starts feeding back and, yeah. you know. The thing that uh, that Merle Travis did was he was friends with a lot of steel guitar players who, you know, at the time they were playing these solid lap steel guitars and he kept saying, well, that guitar has a lot of sustain and it doesn't feed back and, and you know, it, it has a brighter sound, uh, you know, why can't we turn that into a regular, you know, Spanish style guitar and, and just build one like that? That was sort of Merle Travis's genius was being able to sort of unlock these ideas that nobody had thought of yet, you know, and it, it's unfair to say that Merle totally came up with that idea on his own because they were making some solid body uh, guitars to be played like this in the 1930s, but they were, they had little tiny bodies like ukuleles and they weren't taken seriously. They were sort of treated like toys so that's why you hear me use the term like he's the guy that came up with the modern electric solid body guitar. He gotcha. re really was the guy that envisioned it as something that people would actually play. So not like the Rickenbacker frying pan kind of guitar. Exactly. Because yeah, that yeah. was from 32, I think. Something like that. The first, yeah, yeah. Rickenbacker invented the, the frying pan in 1932. And then they actually came out with a, uh, version, you know, that you could play in the Spanish style, as we say, or regular guitar in 1936. Mm. But they, did, they didn't make very many of them, and people didn't use them. I mean, it was like, you know, it was just a novelty. Okay. And uh, we've already gotten so geeky that you've lost half your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I think we people got... are just, they're falling asleep here. Oh, no. <laughs> Do I have to bring out the snack cannon? No, I'm kidding. Joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, no, but I... I... ragtime influence with the stride piano kind of um the the way he could do that fingering where you got the, it's almost like a bass player playing along in a in a way you know i mean you obviously know better than i do but um well the thing that's interesting about merle uh is that you know he was not the first guy to play like that but you know he came from kentucky and then his first real professional experience was in Cincinnati and and both of those places 
are kind of where north meets south, black meets white. Uh, you know, you've got country, but you've also got jazz and blues. Uh, there was just a place where a lot of stuff got mixed up together. You know, you've got, it, I mean, it's it's got all the great elements of, of America in that era coming together. You know, railroads and uh, uh, paddle boats on the rivers and, you know, it, radio coming into being. So Merle kind of came up in all of that and, you know, he was born in 1917, so he was in that sort of older generation where they played pop and Dixieland and, uh, you know, marches and polkas and, you know, all this kind of stuff in addition to playing country music. So uh, when he started playing that style uh, to do all this sort of syncopated thumb stuff and all these jazz chords and all this kind of accompanying stuff that they did it really was stuff that everybody around him was doing it wasn't like he came up with it all on his own he was just the guy that like he had this sort of ability to hear something and play it back better than what he had just heard and he was able to refine it to such a degree that he became a a master of that style Mm. and that was was he's obviously an influence on your playing i mean or... Yeah, although I can't play like Travis, you know, I I play a lot more like Scotty Moore, who played guitar for Elvis. And, you know, Scotty was kind of playing at Merle Travis, you know, but uh, Merle's playing is like so far up there. Very, very few people can really touch him. You might think of Merle Travis as a country music person and, and maybe some of the people listening might think that's boring or they're not interested, but it, it really is a fascinating story. And, and he's way more punk rock than almost any other country guy I can think of. I mean, he was just a complete madman in a lot of ways. And so I think anybody who would enjoy a biography of Johnny Thunders would also enjoy a, the biography of Merle Travis. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just uh, some corny thing about a, a country guy with a cowboy hat. Uh, so I think a lot of people out there would enjoy the, the book. Awesome. I can't wait to read it. I did want to talk to you about your label, Echophonic Records. So what inspired you to uh, to start your own label? Well, you know, uh, obviously, you know, when I first started making records with my first band, The Untamed Youth, uh, we were on a label called Norton Records. And, and then we did some things with some other kind of smaller labels, Estrus Records. And uh, I think like a lot of people, eventually you kind of realized, well, these record labels really are just, individual i mean they're just people putting out records and storing them like you know in a warehouse or garage it's not like they're actual record labels who are you know taking out full page ads in the uh the village voice or anything like that and so at some point in the the early 90s i just really wanted to make my own record label just so i could put out whatever the hell i wanted and i had a pretty pretty decent day job at the time. So I always had a little spending money in my pocket. And so I just wound up putting out a whole bunch of 45s uh, and a couple albums. uh, And it was just really kind of with my pocket change. And most of them broke even a few of them made money, a couple of them lost, lost money. And then since then, uh, I was on a label called high tone records, which was sort of sort of like the last gasp of a uh, medium-sized record label that would actually like 
take out ads and, you know, give you tour support and all of that. And I did that for a couple of years. Uh, but when that ended, then I just started putting out my own CDs and things and, and, you know, hustling them at shows and, and did quite well with them. So I've just kind of been a do it yourself mm. type of guy most of my life. Right. Uh, well, getting back to Norton. Um, so how did you, um, I'm just, I'm just trying to picture like, you know, you were a teenager, right? From like, you know, growing up in Missouri and then all of a sudden you're in New York city and then you meet like Billy and Miriam and you, you know, with Norton records and how, like, how did that all happen? Like, how did that happen? Well, it's funny because, you know, we did this trip to New York in 1987. I can't remember what month, but it was in the summer sometime. And <laughs> we all know Todd Abramson, you know, from Tell Tellstar Records. He, you know, I was so young at that time. I'm trying to remember, uh, I guess I was 18, maybe 19. And, um, Todd had said something that was sort of a Todd way of saying he wanted to sign the untamed youth, but because I was so young and stupid, he did not come out and directly say, I want to sign the untamed youth. <laughs> and so like on that same trip, like, you know, maybe a day or two later, uh, you know, Billy said, you know, I want to sign the untamed youth. And, and I was like, Oh my God, a record label wants to sign us. And then, you know, Todd was like, well, wait a minute. I said I wanted to sign you two days ago. And I was like, oh, you did? <laughs> I mean, God, I was so stupid back then, you know. But, you know, luckily, uh, you know, Todd forgave me. We, we played a million shows for him over the years. But, uh, you know, at that time, 1987, there weren't any bands around uh, doing what we did and, and certainly not young guys like not even 20 years old and so uh i know that norton they were just kind of starting then and they they were very anxious to have a, a young band on the label making that kind of music mm. what was it like i mean that was your first time in new york when you just when you came out then or i had been there i had been there once before on a like a family vacation thing with my mom uh and then actually no, no this is a good story i'm just remembering this uh, so yeah, I had been out there once when I was 14 or 15 with my mom. And then at my first job, I worked at this grocery store in Columbia, Missouri. And they, I was at that time when I was working this grocery store job was when I was really getting into kicks magazine. You know, this is before Norton records was founded or anything, but kicks magazine, I was just reading over and over and over again. It was just like the greatest thing ever. And the local Pepsi company, I uh, had this contest where if you got a thousand bottle caps, you would uh, get a free plane ticket anywhere in the United States. <laughs> well, in my hometown of Columbia, Missouri, they had a bottle law where you had to turn in your, your bottles. And it was the only city in the whole state that did that. And I had the job of working in the bottle room, like, <laughs> you know, sort of sorting all the bottles and stuff. And so you know, for about three or four months, I'm back there in the bottle room and I'm just like, <laughs> sorry, okay. I'm, 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 I'm filling my pockets with, with Pepsi bottle caps. <laughs> and, and it took me like three months, but I got a thousand bottle caps and I sent them in and I got a free plane ticket to New York city. And my parents were like, you're, you're 17. You're going to fly out to New York city by yourself. I'm like, yes. 
I'm going to go out and I'm going to see Billy Miller and Miriam Lena from <laughs> Kicks Magazine. And, uh, and they were, you know, they were horrified, but I did it. I was just, I was too headstrong. So I, I went and did it. And that was, that was a really memorable trip. And that was really kind of where we set up the, the shows that wound up happening about a year later when the Untamed, Untamed Youth first got together. Wow. Um, that's so cool. And yeah, and yeah, Miriam and Billy, they're just, you know, awesome, awesome, wonderful people. Um, I sure do miss Billy, man. I still yeah, can't believe he's gone. Me neither. Me neither. Um, but I, I am so glad that, you know, um, you got that experience, but with like kicks, you know, um, I'm just thinking about your own fanzine, you know, um, did you start that around the same time? Were you influenced by, by Miriam and her amazing writing? I love her writing. Well, yeah, as soon as I, I was into kicks and, uh, you know, there was a whole bunch of different fanzines at that time and I, I got a big handful of them and, you know, what do you do? You start your own. So I started one called the show me blowout. That was all about Missouri rock and roll from the fifties and sixties. And that was really kind of the first time that I had ever like tracked down any of these old guys and got their scrapbooks and, you know, interviewed them and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I, I did three issues of that in between 1986 and 1990. Okay. And, uh, you know, they're they're fun to look at now. I can't believe how much work I put into them. Yeah, I, I know. I, um, Blair with the the teen scene. He's you know that's right. Yeah. Looking through all those old teen scenes, that you know they, he should like just put a book out of them. But because he's got some great stories in there, but you know, um, I've I've still got a ton of those old fanzines, and uh, man, I haven't looked at them in a long time because that. That is such a foreign concept, especially if you try to explain to some, you know, like 18-year-old kid now, like, yeah, man, we would write these stories on a typewriter, and then we would cut and paste and go to, you know, the copy shop, and then we would, like, Xerox them, and, and then you would have this printed thing that you could read, and it's like, dude, why? You just set up a website in 12 minutes and do all that. Uh. But, uh, you know, it was it was really kind of like a, a, a fun era where – everybody wanted to have their own fanzine and put their own point of view across. And, and man, there was just a million of them on a million different subjects. Now, you know, that being said, it is great that if I find some weird garage band record by some band from Indiana in 1966, I can go online, type in their name. And there's some blog that some guy wrote, you know, eight or nine years ago with the whole story of the band and like a bunch of pictures. Like, I love that about the internet. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. That's but, true. Uh, you know, there is something that I miss about the, uh, I don't know if urgency is the right word, but you know, just that sort of now feeling of, Hey, I just made this and there's only 30 copies and then it'll be gone. And, you know, so if you want one, you got to get it now. And, and, uh, I miss that sort of feeling. When you were in high school, did you want to always be a professional musician? Is that like, is that something that you? No, I mean, you know, I, my mom was always telling me like, you, you've got to do something else. So you have something to make money. And of course she was absolutely right. Uh, you know, but my dad, on the other hand, he, he had a job with the army, like working a desk job with the army uh, when I was a kid and he hated it so much that he quit and started restoring antique airplanes in a building behind our house. Wow. Uh, so, you know, he was kind of my inspiration for like, well, basically you can just do whatever you want to do in this life and, and you don't have to worry about the consequences. That was not necessarily true, but that was my 
perception, you know? And so I wanted to play music, but you know, my mom was telling me you've got to get a real job. And so for a while I was going to be a surgeon. Wow. Oh man. They, they, they thought, Oh yeah, that's, that's awesome. You know, you're, you're going, yeah, this is great. And then they did one of those sort of like career days where they, uh, you know, actually like brought this young kid, you know, and, and, uh, a family friend was a surgeon. And so he brought me to work. And during the course of the day, you know, I saw him like, uh, remove a, uh, a, I don't know if it was a goiter or a boil, but it was about the size of a softball Whoa. from the side of this guy's neck. And it was like, as soon as he cut it open, like all this pus came out that just stunk like worse <laughs> than anything I've ever smelled. And then like, then he had to go look at this like 85 year old woman's uh, rectum that he had done some surgery on. And so like we're in this room and he's like spreading apart this 85 year old woman's butt cheeks. And, and, uh, and then, then we go to this, like the other surgery where he's having to like get all these like fatty things out of this uh, woman's uh, small intestines. And, and so he's like, get, you know, like grabbing all this stuff out of her small intestines and throwing them into a bucket. And, and after the end of the day, I was like, nope. dude, no, I cannot be a surgeon. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed in my entire life. And, uh, and so then, and then at that point, you know, I was, I was going to be a journalist and I, I don't know, I had a couple of other sort of excuses, but as soon as I could, I, I moved to California and I just started playing music. Wow. You, you got that surgeon on a really bad day. <laughs> I think that was just a normal day for him. Maybe. Or, you know. Wow. Well, thank God that he, that you saw that old lady's rectum. Then you, who knows? Well, you might not be sitting here right now. <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing is that guy, you know, he lived in this humongous McMansion and he, you know, he had fancy cars and a boat and a giant RV and a swimming pool and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, hey, man, you know, when you're 14 or 15 years old, you're like, yeah, I want that. Mm. But then when you, you know, no, I don't really want to spend my daytimes uh, doing all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, eventually I realized I'm a creative person and. And so regardless of how my circumstances turn out, I, I have to do, do creative things because I am a creative person. Yeah. I, and it, you know, it takes a lot of courage to like sit there and say like playing the music that you love, like, you know, do like, you know, writing about the people that you like, you know, care about or writing about the people that you ad admire. I mean, that's pretty awesome that like how many people don't get to do that or they, you know, are too scared to do it. So, I mean, that's, it's pretty awesome that you well, can do it. I, I will pull a quote from the Merle Travis book. Uh, this is something that he told uh, Barbara Mandrell, who I got to interview. She said that Merle told her, he said, you see this right here? That's a genius. And if you go around the circle all the way around, that's an idiot. And they're, <laughs> and they're right next to each other. And so, you know, you, you're over here saying, wow, you must have been really brave. I'm like, no, I was just a dumbass. <laughs> you know, like, just, hey, just get on the, the high dive at the uh, swimming pool and just jump off. You know, hey, I don't know how to swim, whatever. Yeah. Well, speaking of um, the Action Point 
movie. Speaking of like water parks, oh, nice segue. Nice thank segue, you, thank yeah. you. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, if for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, it's based on a legendary, uh, crazy amusement park uh, from New Jersey called Action Park, which I went to when I was a kid. Survived, got the bruises. And you lived to tell the tale. I did, yeah. Yep. Yep. My brother actually went into that crazy loop de loop thing that was only open every once in a while. Um, I think he dislocated his shoulder, I think. Wow. <laughs> Alpine slide, you know, the burns from on the arm off the, you know, flying off. But um, so how did you get in touch with Johnny Knoxville to work on that soundtrack for Action Point? Well, this has been, I guess, about 11 years now. Uh, I met Johnny Knoxville while I was doing this documentary called The Wild and Wonderful Whites of West Virginia. Oh, my God. That's and such a great documentary. <laughs> He, uh, I, I knew the director and that was how I got the gig, you know, doing the incidental music for it. And originally it kind of went through a couple of different production companies. Like at one point it was going to be MTV and, uh, eventually it, it fell into Johnny Knoxville's production company. And so we'd be over there and he was just kind of wandering around. Eventually I met him and, and, uh, you know, he's, he said he knew me and knew my music. I'm not sure if that's true, but, uh, I just kind of kept in touch with him and I guess it was uh when Jackass 3 came out I I literally just said dude what do I have to do to get a song in that movie uh you know I will (laughs) do anything to get a song in Jackass 3 and and so there's a scene where a bunch of midgets get into a fight and one of my songs is playing way in the background uh that was that was a nice payday you know so then after that he started calling me up for things um there was a movie that he did with Jackie Chan called Skip Trace, which I'm not, I don't think it ever made a theatrical release over here, but it, it was theatrical, theatrically released over in Asia. And uh, it's been on a bunch of like airplane, you know, showings and things like that over here. I did six or seven songs in that. And then I did a, a, a pilot for a TV show that Johnny Knoxville was doing for ABC that never panned out. Uh, so, you know, I've done done quite a few things for him over the years, but um, it was right before Christmas in 2017, I guess it was, I get this phone call from, from Knoxville and, and he says, you know, what are you doing? Are you at home now? I'm like, yeah, I'm at home. And he's like, well, I hate the music that they have in this movie I'm working on. Can you like whip some stuff up real quick? I'm like, well, how quick? He's like, well, we need four songs in two days. Uh-oh. You know, it was like writing them, recording them, you know, editing them to the picture, whatever. So I did that and they liked it a lot. And so I wound up doing more and then worked through Christmas. I worked through New Year's, just locked myself in the studio. And I wound up doing 17 songs wow. in this movie. Um it came out in 2018 and it did not do well at the box office. It was pretty much a, a, a flop, but uh, like a lot of Knoxville things, you know, it has wound up getting a lot of back end uh, being shown on TV and rentals and things like that. So uh, I'm actually starting to get some some pretty nice BMI payments for that. And that's really, really helped out, especially, awesome. you know, during the last six months. Yeah, I think we saw it on Netflix like a few weeks ago because yeah. the whole there's a new documentary on um, on Action Park. Right. So um, I think HBO put out. And so I think a lot of people are going back to watch Action Point 
Because the thing about the documentary that, you know, Blair and I were talking about was they didn't, they kind of took a, the joy out of what, you know, they were like, it was so scary. And, but it was a lot of fun. And I think right. the, you know, Action Point actually gets into how much crazy fun it was. Um, and, and your music works so well with it too. So, um, it's a lot of, it's a fun movie. I, th- I, I enjoyed it. So it was a super fun project to be a part of, you know, like, uh, having seen several of the different cuts that they were doing, uh, I don't know what they were thinking, but like the first cut that I saw was a lot more like jackass. It was just a lot more people having fun and getting hurt. Mm. And then they started editing it and putting more of this sort of emotional plot of him with his daughter and all this kind of stuff in it. And there was a lot more of that by the time it actually hit the theaters. And uh, I think that probably is, is what hurt it because if you're a Johnny Knoxville fan or a jackass fan, I mean, you just, you want to see crazy stuff and you want to see people get hurt and you want it to be sort of dark humor and funny. Uh, so I'm not sure what they were thinking with that angle, but, uh, uh, working on the movie was a blast, you know, because it was like, well, <laughs> I, I always like to joke when it, when it comes to, to, you know, Johnny Knoxville, it's like, well, I'm composing to the picture and, you know, every picture is, you know, where do you sequence the guy getting kicked in the nuts, you know? Because it's like, well, let's, let's make sure the climax is like right when the guy is getting, you know, kicked in the nuts. That, that does happen in almost every scene I've made a song for. Yeah, yeah. I, think, <laughs> I still can't believe he does like, he does all of his stunts, doesn't he? Or... Yeah, and, and man, he, you know, there's that one scene where he's like on some little bitty cart going down this, you know, the side of this mountain on this, this track and he comes around this curve and he comes flying off and just hits his face right into the dirt. His eyeball actually popped out. Oh my God. Like, like they actually had to rush into the hospital and like push his eyeball back in. I'm like, Jesus, like that guy is tore up, man. Yeah. He's like the evil Knievel of our time. Seriously. But that ride he was on, um, that was an actual ride at, um, Acton Park. That's crazy. Like it was all the Alpine slide. It was just like concrete and you're on this like tiny little scooter kind of thing. You had a little break. You could either go forward and it goes faster. You pull it back and it would break. But it was like teenagers taking care of everything. So sometimes you got one that didn't have a break. (laughs) Sometimes it was broken. Sometimes the break was worn out because it was like it was like on a roller skate kind of, you know, and it would just like wear down. So and then, yeah, that was... I always went on the slower track. My cousins and all would go on the fast tracks and just like fly around. Yeah. So, but that was an actual ride that really did. People did. That's awesome. Fly down that. So, um, and then, well, and speaking of rides, you've got a, um, a couple songs on the, uh, in Disneyland, uh, on the Cars ride. Well, yeah, technically awesome. the California Adventure Park right next to oh. Disneyland. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. But the, the, the really weird thing about that is I, I started getting, like, texts and emails from people like, hey, I was waiting in line at the Cars ride and and uh, heard a couple of your songs being played. And so then I went through this thing. It took me about a year going to BMI and trying to figure out, like, well, I keep hearing that my songs are getting played, but I'm not getting paid any money. And it took it literally took me a year to find the right person who could tell me, like, oh, yeah, yeah, if an amusement park plays your songs – outside you know to a you know people waiting in line it's not part of the ride 
they don't owe you anything. Oh. I mean, it's just, it's basically like they could be playing a radio or whatever, even if they have like, they obviously have some sort of continuous music thing that plays the same songs over and over again. But oh. no, I never got any money out of that. Oh. Um, Disney's kind of a funny corporation like that. I have another weird story if you, if you care to hear it. Yeah, I'd love to. So I get this phone call out of the blue and it's a guy from Disney and he's gives me some story about how they're putting out an album of Mater's cartoons. <laughs> uh, you know, Mater was one of the characters in the Cars movie and he wants to know uh, about my song Hot Rodder's Lament. Hmm. I'm like, well, yes. Uh, you know, why are you inquiring? And, and he's like, well, you know, uh, we're just wondering if we could, uh, you know, get your permission to put it out on a record in Canada only. It's not going to be in the United States. And, and I'm like, well, okay, well, send me the paperwork. And I never got any paperwork. And then like three months later, there's this sound alike version of my song recorded by some studio band uh. Uh, that's on this Mater's Cartoons album. And, and it's available everywhere in the United States. It's like at Walmart, wherever you go. And, uh. and you know, like I figured, okay, I'm going to get paid by somebody. I'll get some paperwork. I never did. And um, it was just this last year, maybe before Christmas time, uh, I get this, another phone call out of the blue. And it's like, yes, we'd like to renew the agreement. And I'm like, I never signed anything to begin with. You guys have been using it for 10 years. Jeez. And I, the guy said he was going to send some paperwork and the guy said it was going to be Canada only and uh, blah, 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 blah. You know, and I'm threatening to sue them and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so a few phone calls later and uh, I wind up getting a nice fat check right before Christmas, which was fantastic. That's this, that's the sort wow. of outcome that you really want to happen. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you caught it. So. Well, it, it was, it's one of these things where, you know, when the initial thing happened, like I didn't really want to like, you know, hire a lawyer, you know, how much is that going to cost me? Like three or four grand to chase down three right. or four grand in royalties. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so I just kind of let it slide, but it was nice that 10 years later that they were actually able to go and retroactively calculate how many records that thing had sold and how much money was owed me. Wow. There's there's your window into the music business. You're right. You're right. I had a I had, <laughs> Actually, no, I was thinking actually of uh Cars and Girls and um I was thinking of how you worked with Andy Chernoff and um, That's right, yeah. So I have one little like story that a friend of mine saw you at Lakeside Lounge. Um mate rest in peace. Uh in <laughs> in New York City. Um and you were you were singing Cars and Girls, and then uh, Andy got up on stage, and you had to remind him of the lyrics of his own song. Um, <clears throat> so <laughs> was that just a little, I mean, that must have been kind of fun for the audience to, like, see that you had to remind Andy of the words to his own song, but... Um, that, was, that, that was a super fun show. I remember that. And, you know, I... Getting back to another funny story, when Billy and Miriam got married... Whatever year that was, 1989, maybe 88 and 90, something like that. We, the Untamed Youth played their wedding, and uh, uh, Handsome Dick Manitoba was going to come sing a couple of dictator songs. And I had to like give him the lyrics over the phone. Like, you know, <laughs> that's, that's another really funny memory. 
So now I've coached uh, two different members of the dictators on their own lyrics. Yeah. So. How did you wind up working with Andy on? That was your the first Untamed Youth album he produced it. The first two. Um, well, basically, now I'm trying to remember. I think I had met him when I came to New York. Uh, and I wasn't really even aware of the dictators at that point. It was just something that, you know, like would get written about in Kicks magazine. And I just sort of knew their name. And I met Andy and and then he came to see us when we did that first trip out there to uh, to New York in 1987. And Billy said he wanted him to produce the record, you know, because he had like really good sort of Brian Wilson type ideas and and I was like, yeah, that sounds cool to me. And and we wound up getting along really well, personally. Like, you know, Andy's just a, a, a funny guy, and he's got really good ideas. And uh, he and I both share this, I, this concept that, you know, this needs to be a two-and-a-half to three-minute long rock and roll pop song. You know, there's never, ever a reason to have a seven minute song with like 90 guitar solos in it, you know? So, uh, he and I definitely shared that sensibility. And, and I think that, you know, that really helped when we were doing those first couple of untamed youth albums, mm. you know, I'm, I'm still pals with Andy. We stayed at his place, uh, when bloodshot bill and I, uh, played in Woodstock. Uh, I guess that was last year, although, you know, with Corona and everything, it seems like 10 years ago, but yeah. it was last year. He's got a really nice place up there near Woodstock. And oh, nice. so it was great to see him again. Yeah, actually, uh, we were at that show that night. Um, yeah, the, that's we were, right. It was the, uh, the colony up in Woodstock. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I really, forgot you guys were there that night. Really cool old place that they 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 fixed up. I love Bloodshot Bill, and then seeing the two of you together was awesome. I don't just like the love of what you do on stage. You could just see it, and it's you know that that energy is you know you don't get to see that that often. So that was a ton of fun. So well, thanks. Yeah, I, I love Bloodshot, man. He's he's one of the great uh, nuts of. All times. Yeah, I love him. We saw him up in Kingston, New York, and he was sitting there playing, and he started licking his guitar, and the woman next to me was like, what is he doing? And I'm like, <laughs> 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 so I'm like, he's just amazing. He's awesome. If you want to talk about you know, some I've, of your collaborations, I'd love to. Well, just real quickly, you know, I, I've done a bunch of records under my own name and under the Untamed Youth name, and uh, I just kind of realized, like, there's certain people that I really wanted to record with. And so some of my high tone records I did uh, under the Deke Dickerson name, you know, I would have guest stars on there like Larry Collins or, uh, you know, Claude Trenier from the Trenier's. And that was super exciting for me to be able to, you know, hire these guys to do a session and be on my, my album. And since then I've just wound up doing a bunch of collaborations just because these were people that I really dug and thought were super talented and thought we could make a fun record together. You know, I did a surf record with the trash men that I thought turned out really well and did a, a soul record with Nikki Hill. Uh, we recorded down in Memphis with the band called the Bo Keys, And I thought that turned out really well. And then I did this EP with bloodshot bill and, you know, we recorded that, with Bloodshot Bill's super low fidelity recording system. And I thought that turned out amazing. And so for me, it's just fun. These are people that I really love and respect. And, and uh, I think that they're just fun records to make. It's nice after all these years of touring to have uh, this great 
amount of talent to be able to call on, you know, like, Hey, look, let's get Mary Huff to sing on this one. And she will actually do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's the sort of thing that I, I never would have dreamed possible when I was 17 years old and first playing in bands. Well, and I'm sure people are amazed to be able to play with you also. I, I, I am. <laughs> there would be something wrong with them then, but you know, whatever. <laughs> but um, do you have any albums coming out or um, you're just focusing on the book right now? Well, the book is done. And, uh, you know, since the, the COVID thing has happened and all my gigs got canceled, uh, we've all sort of been looking for ways to keep playing. And some people are doing these Facebook live shows. But I, I really wanted to do something that was more of like a less of a one guy playing a guitar on a show, uh, but more of like showing different things that I've been able to do. So I started doing these acapella videos and I've done, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them now and all kinds of different genres, all kinds of different songs, originals and covers. And it's basically with me playing all the instruments and those have been super fun to do. And some of them have turned out really well. Uh, so I've got a couple of different record labels that want to put out, you know, 45s or a little 45 box set of some of these quarantine songs that I've been doing. Um, that's really the only thing uh, in the foreseeable future, because obviously everything's been put on hold because of COVID. Right. Well, that's really cool, though, about the 45s. Like, you got to, you know, let us know when that's coming out. I will. And I I should mention, uh, I have a band here in Los Angeles called Deke and the Whippersnappers with two young rockabilly kids. And uh, we just put out a seven inch EP uh, on Pig Baby Records. Uh, That's a buddy of mine's label. And that's that's actually my current release that just came out. So that's available. You can order it on my website. Nice. And, And people can find you like on your website. Okay. DickDickerson.com, uh, and then I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Blair and I were joking around that you should do, like, your own, like, Sanford and Son kind of show, but, like, call it, like, yeah. Dickerson and Daughter, and then just, like, go through, <laughs> like, all the stuff that you found. Because <laughs> we'd watch it, because there's, like, these crazy shows on Netflix of people doing stuff like that. It would be, right. like, American Pickers, but it would just be, like, the outhouse that you found or... <laughs> I actually got the pink toilet that came out of the house that uh, Hank Thompson built that Merle Travis died in. Oh, oh, wow. I hauled this pink toilet like half a mile down this overgrown driveway and, and then drove it from uh, outside Tahlequah, Oklahoma, back to Wichita and then had a buddy of mine drive it from Wichita to California. That toilet's had quite a journey. <laughs> wow. And, and is it being used or you're just like, hanging on to it? I, I still haven't uh, finished the concept, but I, I've been coming up with this idea that I'm going to have it set up as a museum display, and when you open the lid, it will randomly play either a <laughs> Hank Thompson song or a Merle Travis song. <laughs> but it's a it's it's kind of hard. It's a it's one of these wall mounted toilets. And it's broken. I mean, that was the reason I took it is because vandals had gotten into the house and it actually broke it off of the wall. Uh, so it's kind of difficult to mount and, and all that. So, yeah, right now I just have it in storage. I can't wait to see that. You... <laughs> That's a really well, great idea. <laughs> yeah. At, at some point, you know, when shows are back on, you know, it would be awesome to, like, you know, have a traveling museum that goes along with your shows. Yeah. There was actually a, there was actually a guy – 
we played the Minnesota State Fair. Uh, we've played it a bunch of times, but there was one year where uh, the guy right next to the music tent, he had like a country music museum tent. And this was just what the guy did. He just had a truck and he drove around with all these rare artifacts and he, all this great stuff. And I'm like, I want to do that. But with, you know, all this weird stuff that I've collected. <laughs> Didn't you travel with an outhouse or like, well, I, yeah, I, I currently do not own an outhouse, but uh, I've had several outhouses in my backyard. And then we do this show every spring at Viva Las Vegas called Hillbilly Fest. Mm. And so I would bring the outhouse to Las Vegas and we would put it on stage. Uh, but then my, my last outhouse got so dilapidated that we just kind of broke it, broke it apart and threw it away. Uh, and I was planning on building another one for the show this year, but then the show this year never happened. Right. So outhouse and and a pink toilet with playing music for next year with your traveling museum. But I, yeah. I'm like totally serious. Like we would watch you going around looking at your stuff, like telling the stories about all the, the weird things that you found. Like it would be a lot of fun. You know, and then you could have your music I, in between or something. I, I've actually been approached by several different people about doing some sort of a reality show. And, you know, I've even shot a pilot for a show. Hmm. Uh, that were sort of based along those lines, like, okay, here's a guy that tours around and, and, you know, he can tell you interesting things about every town that he goes to and uh, then also play music and show you the best places to mm. eat and all that kind of thing. I, I thought it was a really good idea for a show, but the problem is there's just so many people trying to pitch their reality shows. Yeah. And the people that buy those kind of shows, they're always looking for, like, somebody who's already famous, somebody who's, you know, 20 years old and gorgeous, you know, with really good hair, you know, there's sort of an abundance of middle-aged white guys, uh, you know, in various <laughs> stages of balding. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. Not, you maybe, never know. Yeah, maybe it'd just be a small group of people going like, cool, but uh, <laughs> we're enjoying like you posting the stuff and the stories um, of the things that you find. But it's cool that you're preserving them. So that's that's pretty awesome. And then that you're preserving the music too. So I'm making it your own. You know, some people really don't get what I do. And, and I always try to tell them like, well, it's not like I'm living in the past. Like I don't try to pretend that it's 1956 or what, you know, like I, I like living in the present. I like all the things that we have available to us in the present. But, uh, you know, there's definitely a, there's an aesthetic and there's a style and there's a, a you know, je ne sais quoi, if you want to say about all this stuff that happened in the past mm. that I don't think necessarily has to just remain in the history books or, you know, nailed to the, a wall at a Cracker Barrel saying, look at that funny old thing. I mean, mm. I, I think that, you know, these old guitars and these styles of music and, and things like that, I mean, they're, they're living things. You can, you can grab an old guitar and you can play an old song, and then all of a sudden it's just as current as something that's happening, you know, down the street in 2020. Yeah. Uh, so, so for me, it's never been a thing of this is some sort of weird uh, reenactment that you're doing. It's, to me, it's all part of, you know, um, the American experiment and – keeping that stuff alive is, is, is vital to me. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I was like reading about the Everly brothers, like in some, you know, some of the songs that they did um, was from the child ballads, which are old yeah. Scottish, you know, ones and their, their one tune. Um, Rose Connolly is actually an old Scottish um, song. 
Um, and a lot of like the, the tunes that I'll play like in Irish sessions and all are like hundreds of years old, but nope. Yeah. Nobody's like, Oh, this is an artifact. It's like, cool. And let me make it my own. Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing. And then the bunting collection, um, bunting was this guy that went around Ireland and Scotland and he just like collected songs from these old fiddlers um, you know, and all these old musicians, like their mouth music or whatever, and then transcribed it. And then that came over to the Appalachians and then, you know, this whole like living tradition of preserving it, you know, but people are making it their own too. So it's basically like a lot of what you're doing too. Yeah. I'm, I'm certainly not doing anything new. I mean, there's sort of been a, like you're saying, a tradition of uh, keeping these things going from generation to generation. So yeah. I guess I'd rather I guess I'd rather do what I'm doing than just uh, you know go play uh, Angry Birds on the on my phone or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like to me, it's to me, it's more important. Yeah, yeah, and and like what you're doing too is like when I learn a tune, like sometimes it, people will say like I learned it from this person who learned it from that person, and they learned right. it from their great grandmother or something. And a lot of what you're doing is like, oh, I learned this from this album or that artist or. But it is. It's totally, it's all living. It's not supposed to be put in a box and stored away. Yeah. Oh, I did, thinking of just one little thing. Um, a friend of mine wanted me to ask you, when you pick up your guitars, um, like when you're just going to pick it up to play, do you have like a tune that you like like to warm up with? Or is there a riff that you, you know, that's your, your go-to riff to like warm up? Stairway to heaven, always. <laughs> no. uh, well, you know, I've been trying to teach myself how to play Merle Travis thumb picking style. So the last few years, uh, sort of my go-to thing to play is Merle Travis's cannonball rag, which is a sort of his signature instrumental song that, that he did. And it's a tough song to play. I mean, it's, it's, you can, you can sort of get the basics of it pretty easy, but then to really pull it off is, is difficult. So I find myself, that's always the first thing I start playing when I grab a guitar. All right. Thanks, Deke, so much for, for like taking the time out of your busy schedule to come talk to me. Not to, you got it. To talk Thanks to me online virtually. <laughs> I didn't like fly out to California. Or uh, I didn't have enough Pepsi bottle caps to fly out to New York. <laughs> yeah. Man, I wish I could go back to, to you know, 1986, whenever that was, and just get like 100,000 bottle caps. That would have been awesome. <laughs> fly all over the place but yeah yep. th thank you so much and thanks for like i can't wait to like hear your new releases that you're coming out with and uh read your book when it comes out in the spring um so and and hope i hope i hope that you know we'll be able to see you live performing soon um me too can't so. wait to get back out there yeah we, we all can't wait to like see live music again so thank you thank you so much well thanks for having me maureen Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Beat Your Heart Out, presented by Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions. Dive into the show notes at moonoverthetrees.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. Subscribe to the podcast. I'd love it if you could share Beat Your Heart Out with your friends and family and write a review. And again, for the first 20 people who write a review on iTunes, I'll give you a shout out on an episode and we'll send you some fun merch from Moon Over the Trees. Make sure to email me at info at moonoverthetrees.com and include your iTunes name. And I am Maureen Buscarino and I uh, hope you have a, a great rest of your week. Yeah.